Tonight, let's open our Bibles to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles. This is a real challenge because try to make uh, the first 11 chapters, 10 chapters of genealogies, try to make it interesting. And um, I enjoy this because um, we've been taking our time. I I told you initially that we were going to get through this a little quicker, and we will. But we still got, I think, for the another, for at least chapter three and four, we're going to take our a, a little bit more time. But as we get into, you know, five through ten, we're going to zoom a lot quicker, okay? But these first initial chapters are critical because if you remember, the chronicler, who we believe is Ezra the scribe, is giving to us a a chronicle of names, uh, beginning with Adam. Uh, going all the way through Jesus Christ. And remember, we looked at chapter 1, and we looked at um, Adam going down to Noah, and then to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, leaving the ark after the flood, remember? And, and then the chronicler spent some time, a very brief time, about Ham and about Japheth, but then he centered on Shem, because it's out of Shem that comes Abraham. Because they are Semitic peoples. Do you follow? Whenever, and the reason they're called Semitic is because they come from the line of Shem. Think of Shemitic or whatever, okay? So they're a Semitic people. And then it doesn't stop at Abraham because Abraham, God gave to him wonderful and precious promises. He chose Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He gave him promises of descendants that would come after him that would be multitude like the stars. And also a land covenant, the land of Israel that you and I know today. And he reiterated that same covenant to his son Isaac and on to his son Jacob. And then from Jacob, remember, we looked at uh, going through, um, actually we're going to get into that tonight. We're going to see that Jacob had 12 sons. And we're going to look at those and we're going to spend some time looking at Judah for the next two chapters at least. But I titled this evening's message, can you believe, ha- believe having a title to Chronicles, a bunch of genealogies? Well, I have a title, and it's called The Demonic Contract. And what do I mean by contract? I don't mean a contract that you write. I'm talking about a hit job. The Demonic Contract. You and I all know that when we think of the mafia, they put out hits on people. They put out contracts on people's lives. Let me suggest to you that Satan has had a contract out on the human race, and specifically the line of Judah. From the very beginning, you know, we will see that. The previous genealogies of chapter 1 were meant to get us to this point by finally getting to the line of Judah. And it was the line of Judah, remember, that not only David would come, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. And, and, and we know this from different verses in the Bible. Remember, again, by the, as, as often as I remember, or as often as I tell you of these verses, hopefully it will be marked on your indelible mind. It'll be like an indelible mark on your heart and your mind. I, you know, Genesis 49, verse 10. 
As Jacob is dying, what did he, he, he brings all of his 12 sons together and he begins to prophesy over them, doesn't he? And he gets to Judah and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And that word Shiloh literally means tranquil or peace. It's a, uh, it's a word meant to uh, be the Messiah, Jesus. That's what it's there for. And it's even capitalized in your Bible. The translators capitalized it to get your attention that this is not just some any old word. It's prophetic. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, remember we looked at the Davidic covenant. How important is the Davidic covenant? It's very important because when God spoke to David, he gave him great and wonderful promises that through his line, through his seed, would come the Messiah. And it would be, he would start a kingdom and it would be an everlasting kingdom. He said, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. And it's singular. How do I know that? I will set up your seat after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Do you follow me? So the seed, if you go back, I think it's the antecedent, the seed is speaking of his throne. Who is this throne? Now, immediately it was talking about Solomon, wasn't it? But it was speaking far beyond Solomon, and we get that when we finished that area of the scripture. He says, he shall build a house for my name. Certainly Solomon did that, but guess what? Jesus is building a house. He's building his church. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon lived for 70 years and died. But the throne, or the the, the ministry, the, the kingdom that God is going to create through his son, Jesus Christ, will last forever. It'll never end. And then he goes on in verse 15, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And I didn't repeat that of my own accord. That's what the scripture says. It repeated it again to make sure we understand that it's the seed that's going to endure forever, speaking of Christ. So what is interesting to me is the twist of events that occurred in the line of Judah. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' genealogy is is, is given going back to Abraham. And there's five women that are mentioned in the genealogy, which itself is peculiar because it wasn't customary for women to be in, in, in the genealogies. But they're listed here. So to have them here is very interesting. It's also interesting because of the nationality and the occupation of some of these women. Read with me just the first uh, 16 verses. Notice what it says. The, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there is the demarcation of how this is going to be broken up because it first talks about the, you know, going down through the son of David and then back to, and then from Abraham. So he starts with Abraham. So Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now underline this woman, Tamar. (laughs) Here is one of the five women mentioned in the first 16 verses of this genealogy of Jesus. 
One of them, her name is Tamar. Did you know that she played a prostitute? She, she wasn't a prostitute by trade, but she played a prostitute, beguiling her, her father-in-law. And, and partly it was his fault too, because we'll get to this uh, shortly. But notice there's Tamar. And then so, uh, so Judah begat Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. There's another female name in here to underline, and we all know this Rahab, right? In Joshua, it tells us that she was a prostitute. Her title is Rahab the harlot. Now, I know, I believe, that after she came into contact with the Jews, that she was no longer a harlot, but that's, who, that's what she was called. She had a house right on the wall there in Jericho, and it was very easy for suitors to come and to go under the stealth of dark. Rahab the harlot, she was the one who hid the two spies when they came in to spy out the land. So here we have a woman who is a Gentile, a Canaanite, and a prostitute in the line of Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? (laughs) I love that the Bible doesn't sanitize these things. God could have, I mean, I don't know, he could have done anything. But he wasn't somehow jilted in the fact that he would have in his line in, 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 the, in the physical, he would have sinners, because every one of them are sinners. Whether you're a prostitute by trade, it doesn't matter, because the Bible says that we've all sinned. Raise your hand if you've not sinned. I don't see any hands, because we know that we have all sinned, and come short of the glory of God, right? And let's go on here. So, And then Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Underline Ruth, there's the third woman in our genealogy, unheard of. And get this, she was a Moabitess. And Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And then David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And remember her adultery with David in 2 Samuel chapter 11? So the product of this union, the, the child, the initial child, was taken by the Lord, but they had, another, they had three other children that we know of, or maybe even four, but Solomon was one of them. And then Solomon begat Rehoboam, Rehoboam begat Abijah, and he goes all the way down into verse 16, finally, and it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Amazing. Yes, there has been a demonic contract. What do I mean by that? There's a conspiracy, has been since the garden of Satan, seeking to pollute the line of, human, of the human race. Not only to pollute it, but to zero in. As soon as he was able to ascertain what God's plan was, he began to act. We see him going after Eve. And the Bible, as you know, is a book of redemption. And if it is a book of redemption, then there must be a redeemer, correct? 
And we know that the Redeemer is none other than Jesus Christ, but Satan also is aware of this. He's very much aware of it, perhaps more than we are. Satan is not equal with God. He is no powerful, he's not powerful like God. He is a created being. And he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, and he's certainly not omnipresent. Those characteristics only belong to God. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. And there are things that God knows that Satan does not know. But Satan was and is aware of passages. He was there in the garden. He, He doesn't need to read the passage. He was there. As soon as God created man, he began In Genesis 3.15, Satan was aware of Genesis 3.15 when when God, as he begins to pronounce judgment upon the serpent for deceiving Eve, God says, and I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he, notice how God uh, qualifies the seed with the pronoun he, He shall bruise your head, meaning it'll be a fatal blow, a crush, and you shall bruise his heel. And certainly, Satan bruised the heel of God, if you you can think of it that way, when he was finally crucified, and Satan thought he had it all together, (laughs) but he didn't, because he didn't understand what God knew about his plan of redemption. I wonder how much he did know. But he didn't know Isaiah, he, he wasn't, um, or excuse me, he was aware of Isaiah 9, verse 6, which we know. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. What? This son? Yes. This son is going to be Almighty God, Everlasting Father. And then it goes on, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his... Do you realize what happened here? Do you think Satan was aware? Even as Isaiah was penning this, as God was giving it to him, I wonder who was over his shoulder looking at every single word. Satan knew very much what this is. And think what he's thinking. He's, he's reading what Isaiah's writing because he does, he's not omniscient. God was giving it to him and he says... Of the increase of his government, this child, this son that would be born, he would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, peace, there'll be no end. Upon the throne of David, now Satan's got ammunition. So now he's thinking, i got to find out who this son is. i got to find out who this David is. And he's putting two and two together, and he's waiting patiently as history goes on. And then he hatches his plan. Upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. So now Satan's got a problem. He knows his time is short. And what does it tell us in Isaiah 11? There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Okay, now it gets even more sticky, doesn't it? Because now God is giving names. Satan's got his little pad and paper out and he's going, okay, from Judah, or from, uh, from Jesse, King David. And in that day, verse 10 of Isaiah 11, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. And then we go over into Daniel. 
And remember when Daniel was interpreting, 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 there's a new word. Let's all say it together. Interpretating. You've heard it here first. Okay? When Daniel was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, now Satan is there, I'm sure, and he's listening. And what does Daniel say as he begins to interpret? You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. And this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and it was... And its form was awesome. The, the, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Let me ask you a question. If you had a statue of, of gold and all these other stuff, and that rock made without hands strikes the feet of that image, and it was a very large image, and it smashes the feet, what is going to happen to the rest of it? Coming down, right? And notice, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, they were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And notice, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Who is that, that stone cut without hands? It's Christ. It's Jesus. When he comes back in his second coming, it's going to be a fatal blow to the kingdoms of the world. And that's exactly what that statue that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed of was. The, the great kingdoms of the world. Even the revived Roman Empire, which is being revived as we speak, folks. Do you know that? Under our, little, under our little noses, quietly in the background, sometimes not so quietly, forming, forming, it's happening. You better get ready because Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. We've never seen things like what we're seeing today. Be ready. If you're not born again, get born again tonight. Give your heart to Christ. Confess your sins. Come to him. Time is running out. The line of Judah was a major target, and we will see how Satan incited the men in the line of Judah tonight. And his hope was to somehow thwart or confuse or corrupt the line, attempting, hoping to keep the prophecies from coming to pass. And of course, Satan failed. Because all the, all the things that we're going to read about in this genealogy in Judah, I believe that the enemy was sowing, uh, was inciting different individuals to do certain things. And they gave in. And all the while, Satan's going, oh, good. Because I've heard about Isaiah. I've heard about Genesis. I know where this line is coming, and so I am going to work. I, has, I don't know if any of us have really been tempted by the devil himself. Maybe by demons, we can all be tempted. As believers, we can't be possessed. But we can be tempted of the devil. And we have the Spirit of God. If you're a child of God, the Spirit of God is in you. Can you imagine not having the Spirit of God in you? You're like a sitting duck. How important, then, is it to be born again now, today? When temptations are abounding and they're even increasing and being, becoming more uh, difficult to resist. I don't know about you, but I ask the Spirit of God to come upon you 
He's in you if you're a child of God, but say, Lord, baptize me in your spirit every single day. I can't live without you. I can't. I don't want to live without you. I'm a sitting duck if it weren't for the the grace of God. If it wasn't for his spirit, I'd be a sitting duck. Anybody want to be a sitting duck? Quack, quack. Nobody does. But he was hoping to pollute and to corrupt this line. And Satan, because he's not omniscient, he couldn't know what God knew and ultimately what God was going to do. And even if Satan knew the prophecies concerning the resurrection, like in Psalm 16, verse 10, what does it tell us? David wrote it, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of the resurrection of the dead. Even if Satan knew the prophecies concerning the resurrection, like in that, what I just read to you, or even in Isaiah 53, where it speaks of the resurrection, I believe, when it says, yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him, this suffering servant, who we know as Jesus. He has put him to grief. God the Father has put Christ to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, and then notice, he shall see his seed He, meaning God the Father, shall prolong his days. Well, prior it told us that he was going to die for the sin of the world. He was going to die. So how can he prolong his days if he's already dead, except that he resurrect him? And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Can you see the resurrection in that? It's there. So even if Satan knew the prophecies concerning Jesus' resurrection... He was salivating at the thought of killing Christ, not even caring about the ramifications of his actions due to his great hatred. And folks, do you know, this is how you know when your hatred has become an idol, when your problem, when your sin has become an idol, when you could care less about the consequences. And I'm not just talking about murder, because even though... Satan knew the scriptures. He knew that those, this, uh, he had a, at least an understanding about the resurrection. And maybe he even knew that Christ would resurrect on the third day. And you'd think that he would think, well, if I kill him and he resurrects again, he'll probably be more powerful then. I'm not going to do it. His hatred was such any little bit of ground he could do, he was going to do it. Have you, been that, have you been that bent on something? When you know the consequence is not going to fare well for you, but you want it so bad, just for a moment of glory, just for a moment to see him on the cross and bloodied and, and, and hum, humped over and to see him suffer, did Satan's heart so much good. For a moment he had his pleasure, but then the third day he rose in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? No longer anymore. You've been defeated, Satan. You've been defeated. Throughout the ages, Satan has sought to either thwart the line of Judah or destroy the Jews altogether. He started in the garden, didn't he? We read that in Genesis 2, in the the fall, in Genesis 3, excuse me. And then look in in, in 1 Samuel, we, we saw an evil spirit incite Saul, Israel's first king, to kill David. He hunted David for over seven, maybe nine years. He hunted David, and David was anointed at the time to be king. 
And Saul was so filled with anger and jealousy, it says that the, a, an evil spirit incited him to kill David. Why David? Because Satan knew something that Saul probably didn't even know. The prophecies. He was in the garden. When Isaiah was writing what he wrote, he, he saw it. When David was writing the Psalms, he saw it. And now David comes on the scene. He goes, I know this. I know what this is all about. I was there when Jacob prophesied over Judah on his deathbed. I heard what was spoken there. I had emissaries around watching, reporting to me what was spoken. A demonic contract. Haman and Esther coming from the Agagites, nearly destroyed the Jews while they were in Susa. Completely incited by Satan and nearly wiped the Jews out. And God intervened. A demonic contract was out on the line of not only the Jews in totality, but the line of Judah. And remember Herod, in Matthew chapter 2, trying to kill all the babies under two years old because he knew that it was around that time when they saw the star, he put two and two together, did some math, and decided, we got to kill this child. And who was inciting Herod? Yes, Herod was an egomaniac and couldn't stand the thought of anybody being king but for him. But who was inciting him? It was Satan himself, and he was powerless to resist him. And Herod searched, and he slaughtered the kids. And what about Hitler, Adolf Hitler in the 40s? Nazi Germany exterminating over 6 million Jews. One of the things I'll never forget, I was never there when that happened, but I've seen pictures of the Holocaust. And uh, visiting the Holocaust Museum in Israel, in Jerusalem, Right before you get out of the museum, at least at the time, they had a video on a loop and it showed bulldozers and huge piles of Jewish bodies, dead, mangled, completely deformed, part, partly rotting away. And they were huge piles and these big bulldozers, they showed them just pushing them off. Some of them getting caught underneath the blade and just pushing them, shoving them into the pit and then covering them up with dirt. Can I tell you? I saw that and I wept. I literally did. I made it through the whole museum somehow, but when I saw that video, my wife was there with me. It's too much. A demonic contract. Yes, he, even though Jesus had been already crucified and resurrected and ascended and time has gone on in history in the 1940s all of this had already happened but you know what he hates the jews because there's still a, a future for the jews and there's a future for the church and we're going to meet up in the millennial reign of christ but he still hates them why do you see anti-semitism all around the world and then what about the Antichrist? After the church is removed and then the seven years of, of tribulation, what does it tell us? That the Antichrist is going to hunt the faithful Jews, the faithful remnant. He's going to hunt them like a, like a deer. 
and they are going to flee to Petra. A demonic contract. Because he knows his, his end is coming. It's written for us in advance. He's already read the Bible. The devil knows this better than you and I. He's a genius. I don't want to give him more credit than what's due him, but he's a very smart being. And without Christ, we would be nothing. But with Christ, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? we got nothing to fear as Christians, but if you're not a Christian, you've got everything to worry about. Run to the arms of Jesus. Do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen today. You could drive home and be in a car accident, and it's over. Your decision has been made. What will you do? Are you going to make the decision, or are you going to keep putting it off? Oh, I'll do, I'll do it when I, when, I, you know, when I retire and when I go to the golf course in Florida, and you know, after my, my hips go out and my knees go out and I'm on medications, then I'll think about it then. I'll start serving them then, but not now. I gotta go to the casino. I gotta play bingo. People make decisions. A demonic contract. And let me suggest to you that not only does Satan hate the Jewish people and hate Judah specifically, he hates Judah and he hates the Jews. He wants to keep that temple from being rebuilt. Although he's going to inhabit the, one, the next one that's created on that temple mount, he's going to inhabit that one. But he hates what's coming. And he'll do anything to get in the way, to corrupt it, to keep it from happening. So notice in verse 1, it says, These were the sons of Israel. We'll probably just get through chapter 2 tonight. These were the sons of Israel. Notice, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And these first six sons were from Leah. And remember that Leah, her father was Laban. And they're listed here in the order in which they were born. But then in verse 2, the order gets all mixed up because then it says Dan and Joseph and Benjamin and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And Dan and Naphtali, remember, was from Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant. And Joseph and Benjamin was from Rachel, but Gad and Asher was from Zilpah, who was Leah's maidservant. And it says the sons of Judah were heir. And he did err. We're going to see that. <laughs> the sons of Judah were Er and Onan and Shelah. And these three were born to him by the daughter of Shua, the Canaanitess. So the woman's name we don't know, but her father's name was Shua. But she was a Canaanitess, just like her father. So Er, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so he killed them. Yes, God killed him. Does that shock you? God has the right to do that when somebody is wicked. And we don't know how long God gave him. God is very patient. He was patient with me for 24 years when I deserved to be smoked. So these three were, and so um, uh, Er, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he killed him. And Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah, all the sons of Judah were five. So what is this? So Judah, this, this woman Tamar, evidently was married to Er, 
initially, and God killed him. And so Onan, his brother, was supposed to go in unto Tamar and raise up seed for his deceased brother. But he was wicked because he was supposed to do something. He didn't do it, so God killed him. And so finally, all that's left is the youngest, right? And what was his name? Shelah. The youngest, so this, the youngest of this union between um, Judah and the Canaanite uh, woman was to be uh, given to Tamar once he was old enough to have children. So she had to wait around until he was old enough. We went through puberty to where he was old enough to have children. And then for some reason, Judah, and it tells us this in uh, Genesis chapter 38, this, what this is about. And this is what's so interesting because here is one of those insightful moments, and I pun intended, because I believe Satan was inciting not only Judah, but perhaps Tamar as well, from taking matters into their own hands. The line of Judah, the line of Judah, where Christ would come. So Judah, for some reason, as Shelah, or, um, he gets older, he doesn't give her, give him to Tamar when he should have. For some reason, he didn't do it. And so, finally, Judah's wife dies, and Tamar takes matter into her own hands and pretends to be a harlot alongside the road, and Judah sees her, has a physical relationship with her, and she gets pregnant. And then Tamar gave birth to twins, and their names were Perez and Zerah. So Judah, her father-in-law, being the father of the two boys. Now, she wore a veil. I don't know if she wore the veil over her face the whole night. That's kind of weird, but, you know, he is a guy after all. Did he know? Did he know who it was? She certainly knew who he was. He was supposed to do something. He didn't do it. She took matters into her hands. Satan is all over that, isn't he? He's just like, you can't wait. Did, did that ever happen before with Abraham or, you know, and Sarah? I don't know how God's going to do this. You and I are really old. Well, I'll just go into um, you know to Hagar, okay. And so He does creates a problem, an everlasting problem. So, verse five, back in our text, the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Zerah were Zimri or Zabdi, his name. And now, in the Bible, you'll notice that uh, if you go to different uh, passages in the Bible, like Joshua seven verse one, his name is spelled Zabdi or Zimri. So these kind of things happen, spelling variations. They're not mistakes; they're just different variations of the same spelling. So the sons of Zerah were Zimri, Ethan, he man, Calcol, and Dara, five of them in all. And the sons of Carmi was Achar, and actually Joshua chapter 7 tells us that it's Achan. Achan. Remember Achan? The troubler of Israel who transgressed in the accursed thing? Remember what happened when Israel came into the land? The first, I mean, and you can, if you go to Israel, you can see this. You cross over the Jordan, and there, there's a huge plain, and then the city is right there in front of you, Jericho. So they attacked Jericho, and God told them before they did, take all of the gold, the silver, all the stuff, and dedicate it to me. Dedicate it to me. And so they go in. The success, it's a successful campaign. 
But Achan takes the gold and the silver in a Babylonian garment and he hides it in his tent. And God doesn't say anything immediately. And then they go into the next town of Ai expecting to have a great military victory again and they nearly get whooped. And Moses is crying out, what happened? He says, there's sin in the camp. Who did it? Bring out all the children of Israel and I'll narrow it down for you, Moses. And so, or Joshua, excuse me, yeah. And so he did. And he narrowed down all the 12 tribes down to Judah and then Judah down to its families and then from the families down to one family and then from one family down to a specific person, Achan. And sure enough, they go into his tent and they find the gold and the silver and the Babylonian garment that he coveted, that he wanted when it was supposed to be dedicated. They stone him and all of his family. Yes, his wife, his daughters. They stone the whole family they burn them with fire and put stones over the grave. What do you think? Do you think that was a deterrent? <laughs> if we saw something like this today, it'd be the greatest deterrent. But not in our culture. Anyway, I, I digress. So I'm going to stop there. But notice, so the son, verse 8, the son of Ethan was Azariah, also the sons of Hezron. Now remember, Hezron was the son of Perez, who was born to him were Jeramiel uh, and Ram and Chalubai, or his name is Caleb. We'll find out in verse 18 and verse 42. His name is Caleb. And then in verse 10, Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nashon, the leader of the children of Judah. Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, again, by Rahab. So Boaz begot Obed, and this is by Ruth, David's great-grandmother, yes, Ruth. In the book of Ruth, when you read the book of Ruth, that was David's great-grandmother, Ruth the Moabitess. And then Obed begot Jesse, and that's King David's father. Write down in your margin of your Bible this reference. It's Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It's really the very last few verses of the book of Ruth, and it tells us. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. <laughs> and then it goes on back in our text now. In verse 13, it says, Now Jesse begat Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shimei the third, his, his name is also called Shama or Shamua or Shama, Nathaniel the fourth, Redai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, and notice David the seventh. David the seventh. That's interesting. Now, here's a little anomaly, and hopefully we can look at it. You might want to write 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 6 in the margin of your Bible here, because you're going to see something interesting. In 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 6, remember that God had told Samuel to go anoint David. He told him to go to Jesse. And why Jesse? Because guess what? Didn't God say, you know, uh, several hundred years prior, the root of Jesse? Didn't he say from the tribe of Judah back in Genesis 49? Didn't he say all those things? So God is seeing his plan through. 
He tells him, go to Jesse and anoint one of his sons. I'll tell you when you get there, Samuel. So Samuel goes. And when they came, he looked at Eliab, who was the firstborn. He said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This must be the guy, Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Boy, isn't that true. Have you ever judged a book by its cover? We do it every day, don't we? We size people up, we look at them, and we automatically assume things based on the color of their skin or their demographic, whether they're rich or poor, the place place where they live. We automatically assume these things, and God says, don't you do it. Even if there is some truth and validity to things, you can't put everybody in a, in a, in a bucket. You can't put them in a, in a, you can't pigeonhole anybody. You shouldn't pigeonhole anybody. And so Jesse called Abinadab, his next son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, the third son. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So, so thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Did you, do you see what happened there? In Chronicles, it says that, Dan, that David was the seventh But it says here that he made seven of his sons pass, and David was the eighth, because he said, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And then he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep, young David. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. So he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy with bright eyes, good looking. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went back to Ramah. So this discrepancy that we're seeing, you know, immediately people think, well, the Bible's just full of errors. Well, you've got to do a little bit of research. You've got to look a little bit further. The discrepancy may be that one of Jesse's sons had passed away very young. And this is very common If a son passes away early, he's not going to have seven sons or eight sons. He's only going to have seven sons. So it's possible that when Ezra or the chronicler numbered Jesse's sons, he didn't include the deceased brother. It's also possible that the brother died very early on or died after this meeting that Samuel had with Jesse and his sons. Or maybe this son wasn't able to uh, have children. And it was common just not to include them in the, in, the, in the thing, in the genealogy or in the number. So it's really not a mistake. It's just you have to dig a little further. It's one of those things. The Bible's very clear. It's very pinpointed and accurate. So verse 16, it says, Now their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. And the sons of Zeruiah were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, three of them. Now, it's funny because I remember reading... Uh, Samuel and, and hearing about Joab, the, the, sons, the son of Zeruiah, and I automatically assumed that Zeruiah was a male. But Zeruiah was a female. That was David's sister. And so was Abigail. So Abigail, verse 17, bore Amasa, and the father of Amasa was Jether, the uh, Ishmaelite. And then it goes on and says, Caleb 
the son of Hezron, had children by Azubah, his wife, and by Jerioth. Now these were her sons, Jeshur, Shobab, and Ardon. Now this Caleb that we see here in verse 18, this is not one of the two spies that was sent to Canaan that we read about in Numbers 13 when uh, Moses sent the two spies into Jericho. This is not the same Caleb. You'll notice that in a lot of the Bible passages, you know, think of how many Marys there were. <laughs> there were a lot of Marys. There's a lot of Caleb's. There's a lot of Jacob's. These are very common names. Judah's. There's a lot of Judah's. So, verse 19, when Azuba died, Caleb took Ephrath as his wife, who bore him her. Now, this is very possibly the her who helped Aaron hold up Moses' arms. Remember in the battle with Amalek, when his arms began to get weight heavy, and, and um, Aaron was on one side, and, and, and her was on the other, and they would lift his hands and hold his arms up, and as long as he did, they prevailed in the battle. And then notice verse 20, and Hur begat Uri, and Uri begot Bezalel. Now, I want to stop here in the line of Judah to highlight this name Bezalel. So Hur was Bezalel's grandfather. And you might want to write Exodus 31 in the margin of your Bible because this is a really wonderful fellow. It says in Exodus 31 that the Lord spoke to Moses and this is before they built the tabernacle. Not the, not the temple, but before they built the tabernacle. There had to be order in this. And so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and in silver and bronze and cutting jewels for settings, in carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, the laver and its base, the garments. He goes on and on, but the idea is this man Bezalel was a man who was very gifted. He was one of those guys, he was a craftsman. God just gave him that gift. And, you know, there's people in our fellowship, thank God, because I don't have that gift. But there are men, like the gentleman who made this, these columns in this thing, John, and there's others. You know, there's, there's Jim and there's Joe and other men just gifted. They just know how to do it and they've got experience. These are the Bezalels and the Aholiabs of this fellowship. They're gifted with their hands. And you know, we all have gifts and things and I want to encourage you to use those. Not only in your jobs, but maybe there's somebody in the fellowship that you... Maybe you can help them out. You don't have to do everything for free. Maybe you can do it really cheaply. Maybe you can do it for nothing. Maybe it's a simple job, but you know how to do it, and this poor person doesn't know how to do it. Maybe they can do something for you sometime. You know, the body of Christ, why don't we do that? Get together and help each other out. When we can, if we can. But gifted men. Now, 
Verse 21, it says, Now afterward, Hezron went into the daughter of Maker, the father of Gilead. Gilead is that, that range on the east side of the Jordan River. It's mountainous. So as you look at the Jordan Valley, and you got the Sea of Galilee up here, and the Jordan Valley, and the Dead Sea, the Gilead, even this is called Mount Gilead, this mountain range over on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's all Gilead. So it's speaking about this man. So he went in... Um, uh, Hezron went into the daughter of Maker, the father of Gilead, whom he had married when he was 60 years old, and she bore him Sechub. Sechub begot Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. And Jeshur in Syria took from them the towns of Jair with Kenath and its towns, 60 towns. All these belonged to the sons of Maker, the father of Gilead. And after Hezron died in Caleb Ephrathah, Hezron's wife, Abijah bore him Asher, the father of Tekoa. And this family of Jeremiel, this was the son of Hezron that's mentioned in verse 9, just as an FYI there. But the sons of Jeremiel, the firstborn of Hezron, were Ram, the firstborn, and Buna, Oren, Ozem, and Ahijah, Jeramael had another wife whose name was Atara. She was the mother of Onam. The sons of Ram, the firstborn of Jerarmael, were Maaz, Jamin, and Eker. The sons of Onam were Shimei and Jada, the son of Shemai. Uh, <laughs> you try pronouncing these. Shemai were Nadab and Abishur. And the name of the wife of Abishur was Abihel, and she bore him Aban and Molid. And the sons of Nadab were Seled and Apaim. And Seled died without children. And, you know, I just love the word of God <laughs> that it tells us these things. It didn't need to mention that he died without children, but it did. And we know nothing of this man. There's nothing in the scripture about him. Most of these names are not mentioned anymore in scripture, but they're here for a reason. Because somewhere down the road, they may find a little piece of parchment over in the Middle East, and they'll look at it and go, oh my goodness, the Bible was right all along. And I've got one word to say for that. And forgive me if this sounds a little bit off, but duh. Duh. Of course, the Bible is true. It's the best record. Nobody knew... You know, a Pontius Pilate was actually real. The Bible told us that he was real, that he was the governor. And not until 19, what was it, 73, they, found a, they finally found, they didn't find any evidence until finally in Capernaum they find a plaque or something buried and they look at it and go, oh, there it is. Again, duh. The Bible is accurate. You can put your faith and your trust in the Word of God. Not only the Word of God, Jesus Christ, but His written will to us, His written the Word of God. You can put your trust in it. So the son of Apam was Ishi, the son of Ishi was Shishan, and Shishan's son was Alehi. The son of Jada, the brother of Shammai, were Jether and Jonathan, and Jether died without children. Huh. Don't know anything about him, but the Bible tells us that he died without children. Do you believe it? I do. <laughs> the sons of Jonathan were Peleth and Zaza. There's a nice Zazzy name. These were the sons of Jerarmiel. 
Now Shishan had no sons, only daughters. And Shishan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jara. And Shishan gave his daughter to Jara, his wife, uh, as servant as wife. And she bore him a Tei. And a Tei begot Nathan. Nathan begot Zabad. Zabad begot Ephlal. And Ephlal begot Obed. Obed begot Yehu. Yehu begot Azariah. Azariah begot Helez. And Helez begot Elisah. Elisah begat Sismei, and Sismei begat Shalom. Shalom begat Jechemiah, and Jechemiah begat Elishema. And then it goes on where it talks about the family of Caleb. Now, this is the Caleb mentioned as one of the sons of Hezron, again, in verse 9. So you'll see that they're breaking up these lines so that you can see where they're coming from. His name is in verse 9, and it's spelled Chalubei, uh, C-H-E-L-U-B-A-I, but, but here it's uh, pronounced Caleb. They're both one and the same. So the descendants of Caleb, the brother of Jeharmael, were Misha, his firstborn, who was the father of Ziph, and the sons of Merishah, the father of Hebron. The sons of Hebron were Korah, Tapua, Rechem, and Shema. Shema begot Raham, the father of Jorkoam, and Rechem begot Shemei, and the son of Shimei was Maon, and Maon was the father of Beth Zur. Ephah, Caleb's concubine, bore Haran, Moza, and Gezez, and Haran begot Gezez. And the sons of Jesh, uh, Jadei were Regum, Jotham, Jeshan, Pelet, Ephah, and Sheaf. Maacah, Caleb's concubine, bore Sheber and Tirhana. She also bore Sheaf, the father of Medmana, Shiva, the father of Macbina, and the father of Gibeah, and the father, and the, excuse me, and the daughter of Caleb was Asa. These were the descendants of Caleb, the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, were Shobael, the father of Kirjath Jerim, Salma, the father of Bethlehem, and Hereth, the father of Bethgader, and Shobal, the father of Kirjath Jerim, had descendants. Heroe, and half of the families of Manuhoth. The families of Kirjath-Jerim were the Ithrites, the Puhites, the Shumathites, and the Misraites. From these came the Zorathites and the Eshtaolites. And the sons of Salma were Bethlehem, the Natophathites, Atroph, Beth-Joab, half of the Man, uh, Manahethites, <laughs> Manahethites, and the Zorites. And the families of the scribes who dwelt at Jabez were the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukathites. These were the Kenites who came from Ramah, or excuse me, from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. So, anybody want to pronounce the list of names again? <laughs> but you see something, you know, as we've, we've gone through this, you know, after all these genealogies, again, um, are getting us to David. They're getting us there. And we're kind of getting there. And, and it's telling us about this. And it, it's getting there because uh, it's the messianic line. And, and that's what the chronicler, probably Ezra, the whole goal is to talk about Judah. And that's why you will find a couple of things about the book of Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles 
It doesn't really deal with everybody else. It's going to speak specifically of Judah, the kings of Judah. It's not going to really talk about the kings of Israel, meaning in the northern ten tribes. It's going to speak mainly about the tribes and the kings of Judah, and it's also going to speak about the Levites. And why the Levites? Because the Levites and the Judah and, and the people of Judah, they're, they're destined, they're they were intertwined, right? Why is that? Because the Levites served in Jerusalem, which was in Judah. It was the capital. And they served in the temple. All the sacrifices, all that had to be done by the Levite. Judah couldn't do it. And so their destinies, their roles were intertwined. But do you see, just in a few places here, we can see the demonic how the, how, how the devil just went after these people, hoping to thwart the bloodline, hoping to thwart God's promises. Can, can God's promises be thwarted? There's one who is very intelligent. And again, I don't want to give him more... Satan is very intelligent. If there's anybody on this planet that's more intelligent and smart as he... I don't know of anyone, but I know who's someone who is much, much smarter, who is omniscient, and that's God Almighty. No one can thwart his plan. Even a genius and a smart person with all the intel and the human intelligence and the spiritual intelligence that he has, nobody can thwart the hand of God. And I want to encourage you in this. Number one, one of the things I love about these genealogies is who is included. God didn't choose perfect people to be in the line of, of Christ. Rather, the line contains questionable people. Right? We looked at Rahab, the harlot. We looked at Tamar, who had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. We looked at Ruth, a, a Moabitess, and Bathsheba, a woman who was uh, the general of David's army, or, 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 you know, a member of David's army, and he ends up getting her pregnant and then kills her husband to cover it up. But I love this because God is not looking at the outward package, is he? He's not concerned and ashamed that these people are in his line. He's, and that's, that's why he's not ashamed of you. Because I don't know about you, but I've got a pretty sordid past. <laughs> Before I came to Christ, uh, there was nothing redeemable about me. And I knew that there were other people who were worse off than I was. You know, individuals who were even worse off and doing even more horrible things. But you know what? I'm not going to compare myself to them. I wasn't redeemable. But for the love of Christ, who shed his love abroad in our hearts and went to the cross for us. I mean, that is awesome, isn't it? And God wasn't ashamed to do that. He wasn't ashamed. Let's stand and pray. But again... I don't want to focus too much on Satan here because I don't want to end on a ban of sour note, but I will say this, that, you know, there's an enemy of our souls. 
you know who he is. He's an enemy. He is the enemy. But the Bible does say, doesn't it? And I praise God for this. Greater is he that is in you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. If that's one chapter, one verse reference to remember, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you're a child of God, you've got nothing to worry about. You've got nothing to fear. You've got nothing to fear. Because my greatest foe, Satan, has been defeated by the great God of all creation. And Jesus Christ, my Savior, has all the victory. All power belongs to him. Can I hear an amen? Yeah, I feel like we just went to Memphis recently, and I just want, can I, can I get an amen? amen? Say it louder. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, I, I love it. Greater is he that is in you. Be loved by God. Let him love you in spite of the things that you know that are messed up about you. Even as Christians, there's things today that you're messed up in your heart. and You, you came in here tonight, perhaps, thinking about what happened today, what you did last night, the thing you thought about last night, maybe the thing you looked at last night, maybe the thing you looked at today, but you know what? Put it under the blood and put it out. Take the garbage out and let God love you because it is that easy. You, what is the promise? If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will not choose to look on those things ever again. You might, but he won't. Why? Because the blood of Christ covers it when we confess. But are you a believer? Make your calling and your election sure tonight. Don't leave here. If there's any doubt in your mind or in your heart, please come up. I'll pray with you. You can pray with somebody else. You don't need me. Or go home and kneel before the Lord before your bed and, and get it out. Confess your sins. Receive him. Say, Lord, I am a sinner and I've been making up excuses. I really don't know you, though, Lord. I don't have any desire for you. And that's the honest truth. Fix me. That's the best thing to do. When I came to Christ, I was a mess. Just confessing my sin, crying convulsively. In fetal position. I remember that. I was literally in the fetal position, crying convulsively, knowing how great he was and how miserable and wretched I was. And to think that he would die for me and still love me and still want to use me. Oh my goodness. What does the psalmist say? This is too much for me. I can't attain it. So Father, we just thank you for tonight. I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters. I pray that, Lord, your word would come alive to us even more and that, Lord, you give us that desire to follow you with all of our heart and to put away all these things that we know are not right, to push them far away and to confess them for what they are privately to you, knowing that you will forgive us, Lord, on the merits of Christ on the cross alone. And that's good enough for you, Lord. So we thank you and praise you. Lord, get my friends home safely tonight and bless their day tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you.